ஜானஞ்சனசலாக்காயா ஷீகுருவேநமாஜனாயக்கோகமலாயோந்தேஜகீதாய்ஸ்ரீகிருஷ்ணாஜுன்கீ We're discussing Bhagavad Gita, Chapter 6. We reviewed Chapter 6 briefly at the end of the discussion of Chapter 5. And as I mentioned, Chapter 6 and Chapter 5 more or less go together. They follow the question of Arjuna at the beginning of Chapter 5 where he questions Krishna about renunciation of action as opposed to action. And action means yoga, karma yoga, and yoga. renunciation of action means sanyas so in the beginning of that chapter in chapter 5 krishna told arjuna there's really not any difference between these two and here in this chapter he continues with the same explanation in some some detail with some introductory verses first he says anashita karma phalam karyam karma karuti dya sasanyasi cha yogi cha na niragnir na chakriya What does he say? That one who performs his duties in such a way that he renounces the fruits of his action, that person is both a sannyasi, a renunciate, and a yogi at the same time. And conversely, he says, na niragnir, na chakriya. One doesn't become a sannyasi merely by stopping from work and foregoing the sacrificial fire. The sacrificial fire means, really pertains to prescribed duties, various rituals and, and so forth in the Vedic system. So the sannyasi is above that, but Krishna is saying, just by stopping from work and not performing the fire, you don't become a sannyasi. What is the heart of renunciation? That is the same as... yoga and what is that the selflessness that's involved in renouncing the fruits of one's action so again as we've heard over and over again in these first five chapters you can continue to act but how to act without attachment to the results of your work this is what's important so sanyasa and yoga or in other words or renunciation of action and action yoga meaning action and sannyas meaning the giving up of action they're the same as krishna explained in the previous chapter action is necessary to a certain extent means prescribed duties performed with detachment from the results result of which is what the heart become purified one's resolve for self realization becomes firm and as that resolve for self realization becomes firm and knowledge begins to awaken in the heart the ingress of sattva guna then one can move away from certain actions having the equipoise to cultivate inner life and as we're going to hear in this chapter to actually do dhyan meditation so with the moving away from action that is renunciation comes meditation 
how this moving away from action, this renunciation, and action are the same, Krishna has been explaining, and he'll continue to explain here, is that they're just different stages of the same thing. One, the action of the yogi, the karma yogi, purify the heart and bring about the kind of resolve that's necessary in purification of mind that's necessary to directly cultivate the inner life. So one side is indirect karma yoga, cultivation of spiritual life, and the renunciation of action is moving in the direction of directly cultivating that inner spiritual life. So the two, we have to move away from a black and white, it's one or the other. Arjuna's asking, is it one or the other? And Krishna's saying, it's both. There's no difference between the two. And here they sound opposite. Action, renunciation. So he's integrating knowledge and action. So in the first verse, he makes his clear statement. Yoga and sannyas are really the same. Why? Because the heart of both. You can't be a sannyasi just by changing your dress, he's saying. Just by stopping from work. Stopping from performing the rituals. You have to become selfless. There's a means to become selfless. That's what yoga is about, and that's what renunciation is about. So we have to get to the heart of it. Then he says, know that which is yoga, to be sannyas. Because without renouncing selfless motivation, no one becomes a yogi. So first he says, no one can become a sannyasi just by doing no work and lighting no fire. And without renouncing selfish motivation, you can't become a yogi. And then he clarifies, for the beginner, action is necessary. Whereas for one who has attained yoga, then renunciation of action is necessary. So this was already discussed to some extent in chapter 5. And now remember, as I mentioned in the discussion on chapter 5, both of these chapters are an extended discussion on Krishna's answers to Arjuna's questions at the end of chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, Arjuna wanted to know, how does the self-realized person, there he called him the stita pragya, whose thoughts, whose mind is fixed, how does he act? How does he sit? How does he talk? How does he walk? What is the nature of his samadhi? This word was used, as I mentioned in the previous class. first time the word samadhi comes in Bhagavad Gita is earlier in the second chapter, where Krishna says, samadhuna bhidhiyate. He says, you won't get samadhi that vyavasyatmika buddhi, fixed mind, fixed intelligence, and spiritual absorption, trance, if you're too much attracted to sense gratification, bhogaishvarya, too much attached to bhog, enjoying material opulence, that won't come in you. Then in the end of chapter 2, Arjuna uses the word himself, samadhi, he asks about the nature of the person in samadhi. And as I say, Krishna explained that to some extent. These two chapters, 5 and 6, are an elaboration upon that. So we're going to hear, here in this chapter, more about the samadhi that comes about through the techniques involved in concentrating the mind and actually engaging in meditation. And that culture of samadhi, sometimes we think of it as being the end result. It's actually a part of the practice to cultivate samadhi, the fixation of the mind spiritual trance, and we'll hear about that. So this is the business of those who have attained yoga. Attained yoga, he uses the word here, and that means samadhi. They use it in this verse, he uses it in the fourth verse also, 
describing those who have attained yoga. First it says those who have not attained, they have to do karma yoga. They have to work according to prescribed duties with selflessness at the heart of their work. And as they develop and advance and become actually attain status in yoga, then they renounce action. Actually, it means they renounce activities that are a distraction to their meditation. It doesn't mean that they have to stop working altogether. We'll hear that. So here, he's beginning now, in this verse and in the next verse, to describe attainment of yoga, samadhi. He says, Yadaki nindriyarteshu na karmasu anusajjate sarva sankalpa sannyasi yogarudhastadujjate. So sarva sankalpa sannyasi. It doesn't say sarva all karmani sannyasi. All work, give up. But sarva sankalpa sannyasi. The desire for the fruits of one's action. This has to be completely given up. For one who has attained yoga, he's not attached to sense objects, nor to action. He's renounced all material motivation. That person is said to have attained yoga. And now he goes in the direction of speaking about what is also central to yogic attainment, controlling the mind. So much focus on this in this chapter. This whole chapter is a, really, the stress in this chapter is practice, sadhana. This cannot be replaced with anything. Yoga sadhana, bhakti sadhana, spiritual practice is essential for everyone. Now we've come to really a formal discussion of it in our development of thought in Bhagavad Gita in these first six chapters as to what is the perfectly integrated person that Krishna is speaking about, that he wants Arjuna to be. So he's a responsible person, he acts dutifully. Furthermore, his actions are informed by knowledge, theoretical knowledge, and thus he acts without attachment to the fruits of his activities. The result of that is that he actually gets self-knowledge. Purification comes, he rises to sattva-guna, knowledge of the self manifests. Then he can be a renunciate, and proportionately, he can actually sit in contemplative life, fix the mind, and meditate. So meditation is very popular, but it really requires some prerequisite. It requires some purification of the heart just to be able to fix the mind. One has to rise to sattva-guna. So this chapter here, the karma yogi has been discussed, and, and it should be stressed that all this discussion about karma yoga, as we'll find at the end of the twelfth chapter, Krishna's really talking about karma yoga in such a way that it can be and should be construed as a form of bhakti, a particular expression of bhakti, a kind of a lower expression of bhakti, where we perform actions, our duties responsibly, detached from the results, offering the results to God. This develops into actually being able to embrace God's work as your life. Planting Tulsi, worshipping the deity, publishing Krishna's books, being absorbed in all of these activities. From that external engagement comes internal life, gradually. The practice of fixing the mind, the deliberation, mananam, that involves studying the scripture, thinking about it, contemplating, reflecting over and over again. What is the significance of this? What is the significance of this? What is the significance of what scripture says? Reflecting on that constantly. Then, when it comes to actually smarnam, 
absorption and meditation upon Krishna. So it's not like some, there's this kind of funny story. Years ago in Los Angeles, when I was staying at Nadorka, it was actually, I think, just before I came there. By the time I got there, there was a story of a fellow who, who wanted to always remember Krishna. And so he got himself a little tonette, you know what a tonette is? A little instrument. And then he put a picture of Krishna on the, on the edge of it, and he would just look at the picture, and he joined the temple. Those days we were liberal, even before I had joined there. You know, he was trying to join and get involved, but he wouldn't do anything. He just wanted to remember Krishna all the time, and he used to circumambulate the temple with his tonette. And as the story goes, his circumambulation got bigger and bigger, to include the whole of Los Angeles, and he's still going around and around. And that circular motion, that's called samsara. So, this isn't the way of remembering Krishna. We have to reflect on the significance of Krishna. What is Krishna? We don't want just the head of this. We want the whole of Krishna, everything of Krishna. We don't want just his head, just his smiling face. Why? Because we cannot have the smiling face without the rest of the body. So we should be, in our stage, as eager to hear about the intricacies of material nature and how it works. Prichit Marjan Bhagavatam is fascinated. Tell me about Maya. Tell me about material nature. One of the Shaktis of Krishna. Tell me about it. It's wonderful. In the fifth canon, the whole explanation of the cosmology comes from Sukadeva Goswami. So, well, he says, no one can describe this material nature conclusively, completely, because it's one of the Shaktis of the Lord. What it is, he says, is a transformation of the three modes of material nature. That's what it is. Otherwise, different people have said different things. Astrologers, geographers, historians of the Puranas have said different things, and as far as I've heard from them, I'll try to tell you. And then he talks about the moon and the sun and the, and the orbits and so forth and so on. It's an element of relativity there. He prefaces it all, the whole description, with one conclusive statement as to what it is. First of all, it can't be understood completely, but to put it in a nutshell, what it is, it's a transformation of the gunas, the modes of nature. It's fascinating. So we should want to hear everything about Krishna, know all about Krishna. And then gradually, a particular attraction to Krishna in a particular way will naturally arise, awaken in our heart. And then in the context of doing anything and everything, we can remember him constantly. So don't just put a picture on the end of your flute. And think that that's what it means, remembering Krishna. We're hearing, we're going to hear in this chapter, that meditation, smaranam, dhyan, there's some prerequisite for that. There's some purification that's required. It has to be practiced again and again and again. Purification of the heart is required. So meditation may be popular, but this part is, I have not heard much about in the popular spiritual marketplace. The word purification of heart is, maybe purification is, not a very popular word, but what it really means is that the influences of these essences of material nature, known as tamaguna, the one of ignorance, and rajaguna, they're subdued and their influence is removed from the heart. Sattvaguna is that influence of material nature which is characterized by what? By knowledge. And the happiness, the real happiness of knowledge, and knowledge means self-knowledge. God knowledge, now that's, that's another thing, that's higher still. But with the ingress of Sattvagun comes knowledge of the self and the, the kind of composure that's necessary for meditation 
and then we should make an effort in dhyan in our practice as if our advancement depended upon it full knowing that without god's grace we'll never arrive at his lotus feet those two things that is one of the lessons we learn from the damodar lila you know damodar lila this is the month of damodar kartik and in damodar lila Yashodamai tried to bind Krishna with a rope because of his misbehavior. Actually, the reason she tried to bind him ultimately was because she was afraid that he was, she had chastised him and chased him with a stick and that he was going to run away. So she wanted to keep him there. <laughs> and of course, you know the story, she got the rope and it was two inches too short and she gathered more rope and more rope and some say that the neighbors were watching over the wall and neighboring ladies and having a chuckle at Dishodamai's efforts and the misbehavior of Krishna. They supplied their rope and all the rope of Vrindavan came and still it was two inches too short. Actually, I think Jiva Goswami says that initially she tried to tie him with a ribbon in her hair and then connected to that so much rope. And the cowherd people, they make rope in their spare time. <laughs> so there was a lot of rope in Vrindavan. Couldn't bind Krishna though. Two inches too short. But when Krishna understood, oh, she wants to tie me because she wants to, she loves me. She's afraid I'm going to run away. And she's made a great effort with perspiration coming down her face. She made the effort. And when he saw the effort, he gave his kripa. And then he became captured. She tied him with the original ribbon. <laughs> with the original ribbon from her hair. So those two things. Effort means practice and mercy. Kripa. And we should make our effort and our sadhana as if our advancement and our perfection depended upon it, as if mercy wasn't even a factor. In other words, I'll give our all to that. That will bring mercy. And what will that mercy be? That mercy will come in the form of enabling us to practice. So there's a fine line between the mercy and the practice. Chakrati Vishwanath Thakur, he says in the second chapter in his commentary on Bhagavad Gita, you know this verse. Krishna says one should fix one's intelligence, not be distracted. And Vishwanachakrita comments that this fixed uh, intelligence, Vyavasyatmika Buddhi, fixed mind and intellect. What does he say? Yasya Prashadat Bhagavat Prashado Yasya Prashada Nagati Kutopi. He quotes his own stanza, Guruvastakam. By the mercy of the spiritual master, one gets the mercy of Krishna. Without the mercy of the spiritual master, one can never make any spiritual progress. This was actually a characteristic of Prabhupada, his sense about this. Whenever he would be asked how he was successful, he would immediately remark, only because of the mercy of my spiritual master. He ordered me, Prabhupada used to say, to go to the West and preach. If we look back at the history of that, you find that Prabhupada had written to his Guru Maharaj shortly before his passing from the world, asking for some service. He was living outside of the mission, formally, as a householder, so he couldn't be always involved in serving him directly, and so he was feeling some remorse. I'm entangled in this way. I could not render personal service. Is there anything I can do? And Guru Maharaj, Bhaktisiddhanta Sashtitaka Prabhupada, wrote him a letter and said, I think it would be good for you to preach in English made a suggestion, and Prabhupada took that like, he called it, he ordered me. So he magnified the suggestion, what few words his Gurudev had spoken to him, made them his life. 
in this way he said, I've been successful preaching worldwide. So Vishwanachakritak or comments like this, to be fixed in the mind means this, to be focused on pleasing the spiritual masters, pleasing the guru. But interestingly, he says, my only desire, my life is to embrace those things that my Gurudev has instructed me to do, hearing and chanting about Krishna. So again, we're back to the practices. So there's a fine line between the kripa, mercy, and the practice. It's almost as though if we get mercy, we can practice, and if we practice, we can get mercy. And with these two, <laughs> one and different, we can get Krishna, we can capture him, like Yashoda Mai, perfect yogi that she is. So here Krishna begins now, at this point in this chapter, to speak about fixing the mind. We're talking about spiritual practice, he's talking about yoga perfection, samadhi. And he said there's no difference between a sannyasi and a yogi. The heart of both sannyas and yoga is selflessness. One who has not yet attained yoga should work selflessly. One who has attained, it means some status in yoga, can then proportionately renounce action and actually enter into a contemplative type of life in direct inner culture. That person who has attained yoga is self-controlled, without motivation in all of his actions, and so on. And now he speaks about the mind. Central to yoga practice, controlling the mind. Udhara atman atmanam atmanam avasadayat atmaiva atmano bandur atmaiva ripur atmana. He says that the mind, atma here means mind. One should elevate oneself by the mind, not degrade oneself. Indeed, the mind can be the self's friend or its enemy. Now Krishna will elaborate on this, how the mind can be one's friend or one's enemy. He gives an example. He says, for one who has conquered the mind, the mind is the best of friends. But one who has not conquered the mind, it acts like his enemy. There's a story that Sridhar Maharaj used to tell to give us some idea of how the mind becomes a friend. I think we know how the mind becomes an enemy and distracts us and thinks of so many things to occupy us with other than devotional practices and thinking of Krishna. But we don't have as much experience of how the mind becomes the friend unless we advance in devotional service. But Sridhar used to tell a story how two devotees were walking in the field and over the head of the two of them came a vulture. You can see the vultures here. There's quite a few of them. They circle around. Those aren't eagles. Those are vultures <laughs> on top. We're living up so high here that they come close. And you can see them on the roadside, of course. If there's a carcass, they go through the dead things. They're flying around. They're preoccupied with looking for something dead or dying. In fact, one day I was here just after we had cleared the land and we were living in the tents and uh, it was the first vulture I saw. It was so close because we're up so high. I mean, he, they fly up high. But they flap on their very good vision and they look down and I thought, maybe he thinks I'm dying here, you know, he's checking me out. A couple more came and they were circling around me for a while. I made movements and let them know I was alive and well. But at any rate, the vulture came overhead and one devotee saw it and said, Haribol! Haribol! And his comrade said, why are you chanting Haribol? Upon seeing a vulture, when a vulture's preoccupation is with dead things, and you're chanting Haribol. 
Hari Bol means chant Hari, chant Hari. And so his friend said, well, when I see the vulture, then my mind goes to the crematorium where cows that have died naturally are cremated. And when the cow, he's telling the story, you can imagine the other guy, what the other fellow's thinking. And when the cows are cremated, then their, their hide is taken. And from that hide of cows that has died naturally and been properly cremated, the hide is tanned. And from that tanned hide, we make a murdunga drum. And on that drum, we chant, Haribol, Haribol, in Kirtan. So seeing the vulture, which is normally a person would think, oh, such a beast living on dead things, dying, waiting for things to die, to live. That fellow seeing the vulture and thinking, die to live. <laughs> Krishna and Kirtan, Haribol, Haribol. So because the mind was trained properly to become a friend through spiritual practice, it started to work for him. And whatever he saw, that input to the mind from the senses, saw, heard, and so forth, brought him in the direction of Krishna consciousness. So we want to train a mind such that it will work like that. We don't want to just walk around with canned analogies, for example, from Prabhupada's books about camels chewing thorns and and so forth. As charming as they are, and they're wonderful. Unless you go to India, they don't really hit home fully. When you go to India and you see a camel chewing on thorns and blood dripping out of his mouth, then the whole analogy comes home a little bit more. It's compared to sex life and drain your own energy. So, and there's so many analogies like that. But when you're actually living in spiritual life, then you live here at Audarya and you see the little blades of grass coming up like they are now, struggling to come up. And you think, what is the struggle of the sadhaka to make progress in spiritual life? And so many seeds thrown out and how many few will take to it? Even the water comes and rain, everyone doesn't take advantage those who do take advantage, they grow and they struggle. And I'm walking up there and thinking, I don't want to step on the grass. It's just starting to come. But then I'm thinking, some grass has energy, some strength, some life. It will grow. It will take advantage. Our sadhana should be like that. We should see the world and it should cause us to think like this about what we're doing. If we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, practicing spiritual life. And it's not just sitting and meditating. It's if you sit and meditate and then you get up. To what extent you are actually meditating, that will be determined by how the world appears to you, how you look at it, how you react to it, and so forth. So controlling the mind, making the mind a friend. Krishna says, this is important. We have to train the mind. You know, he's going to discuss about training the mind. Here, then, he uses the word samadhi directly for the first time. Jitatmanaha prashantasya paramatma samahita. Sitoshna Sukadukeshu Tatamana Pamanayo. One who has conquered the mind and who is thus peaceful is poised in realization of the Supreme Soul in the midst of heat, cold, pleasure, or pain, and in honor and in dishonor. He's equiposed in all of these things. He's in Samadhi. Paramatma Samahita. Here the word Paramatma is used for the first time in Bhagavad Gita, and appropriately here in the chapter on Dhyan. This chapter is about meditation, dhyana yoga it's called, and the object of the yogi's meditation is the paramatma. 
the Paramatma was introduced in a sense in the end of the previous chapter, as was the mystic practices of yoga, Ashtanga Yoga, in the last three verses of chapter 5. Or here the word Paramatma is used. Now, although this chapter is about dhyana and it's about meditation on the Paramatma, we should not think, this is not of interest to us, chapter 6, we are devotees. Again, this first six chapters is teaching us everything that a devotee is about. He may not be interested in Paramatma. If he's gone so far that he has real interest, real greed, and a corresponding understanding for Bhagawan, and of course, the Lord of the Heart is the Lord of the Heart. So, Paramatma is the Lord of the Heart, in one sense, in a general sense, according to Tattva, but according to feeling. We see a picture of Hanuman tearing apart his heart to try to find Sita and Ram. We've heard of Mahaprabhu being instructed by Gadadhar after returning from Gai. Mahaprabhu had been initiated and he became, he began to overtly manifest his symptoms of love of God. One day he cried, Where is Krishna? Where is Krishna? Son of Nanda. And Gadadhar, who always stayed by his side, said, Calm down. He's all right. Krishna's in your heart. Mahaprabhu began to tear apart his chest. And Gadadhar had to grab his hands and Satchimata saw this and said, Oh, please, you always stay with my son wherever you go. They used to even sleep together, Garadhar and Nimai Pandit in Nadia. And Garadhar taught Sumat Bhagavatam to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in Puri, lecturing on Prahlad, Dhruva Maharaj, these chapters, <laughs> we are told. So, Paramatma is in the heart, but Yam Sham Sundaram Achintiguna Sarupam Premanjana Bhakti Vilochanena Santasadeva Hridayeshu Vilokayanti Yam Shama Sundaram Achintaguna Sarupam Govindamadi Purusham Tamambajami. Whoever is our Lord, our Ishtadevata, then he takes his seat in our heart. Anyway, the point is here that, yes, Paramatma's word is used for the first time here, and it's significant. The Paramatma feature of the Lord is the object of the yogi's meditation. The devotee will also meditate. The object of his meditation will be Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Radha Krishna, and so forth. But the techniques of meditation and the importance of fixing the mind and all these instructions here are very important to devotees. It's not hardly a, is it a chapter to skip over, or is it talking about something that is a different path? It is a path independent, no doubt, in one sense, the yogic path, but... As I've mentioned, all that is in any other system of yoga, and all that can be realized, is in bhakti as well, and more. Prabhupada actually comments, I've cited a comment from Prabhupada, the effect of controlling the mind is that one automatically follows the dictation of the paramatma, or super-soul. The devotee of the Lord is unaffected by the dualities of material existence, namely distress and happiness, heat, cold, etc. This state is practical samadhi, or absorption in the supreme. Unaffected by heat, cold, happiness, distress, means his practice is unaffected by these things. We always feel these things to some extent. But let not the practice be interrupted by them. This is the idea. So here for the first time, Krishna has actually used the word samadhi in this chapter. In verses 3 and 4, he referred to it when he spoke of the at yoga attainment. So samadhi means, basically means yoga attainment, some extent of attainment. It means absorption of the mind. The word was first used in the second chapter. Krishna told Arjuna how you will not get samadhi by being too much attached to material opulence. And then in the end of that chapter, chapter 2, Arjuna asked Krishna about samadhi, the person in samadhi, what he's like. 
Then the term was used again in chapter 4 when Krishna described the different types of sacrifices for attaining Brahman. The absorption in those practices was also referred to as samadhi. And here now in chapter 6, he's going to go into some depth of explaining samadhi. Beginning now with text 8. Jnana vijnana triptatma kutasto vijitendriya yukti jogi samalotstrashma kanchanaha One who is self-satisfied by dint of scriptural knowledge and realization and is steadfast and sense-controlled sees a piece of earth, stone and gold equally. One so fixed is said to be a yogi. He further goes, now he escalates. This verse talks about seeing inanimate things equally. Next verse he talks about this even further development. The yogi is one who sees, looks upon equally, close friend, an associate, an enemy, who is equal with us in his dealings with everyone, whether they're saints or sinners. So it's a little easier to look at all inanimate things equally than it is to look at friends and enemies equally. And this is, look what Arjun has to do. He's talking to Arjun. He's got friends and enemies before him. He has to see them all equally. He's supposed to fight against a certain sector at the same time. So Krishna's talking about this. As we'll hear as we go on, Arjun's reaction is that he's overwhelmed by what it means to be a yogi, which is included in what it means to be a devotee. Of course, he is a devotee, and by Krishna's influence, he's acting as if he's an ordinary person. But his response, we should take note of, it's not a cheap thing. And this is being described here. You have to think about this. You have to contemplate, reflect on this. How to see all inanimate things equally. How to see friends and enemies equally. Saints and sinners equally. Of course, we may relate to them differently. We may see that in the fifth chapter, Krishna mentioned this. One who sees a dog, a dog eater, a Brahmin, an outcast, and so forth. The similar verse, equally. We may see equally the dog and the dog eater and the Brahmin. We relate to them differently. doesn't mean we'll invite the dog in for the Bhagavad Gita class. <laughs> but we see equally means we see the soul in everyone. And of course, we see their conditioning as well. So then we relate accordingly. But the point is, at any rate, this, this is not... These statements here about what it means to attain yoga, we should reflect on them and to try to know what is the ideal, aspire to that type of vision, when we find ourselves not seeing equally, and we should remember these kind of verses. Yogi yunjitta satatam atmanam rahasistitaha ekaki yata chitatma nirashir aparigraha. So now he describes a little bit the practices of yoga. He says, yogi yunjitta satatam. So he says, always should practice concentrating his mind on the self. And rahasistita in order to do this, he says, there are some things that you can arrange that will be helpful. It's not that you uh, chant your rounds uh, while uh, driving down the freeway. It may be something to do better than not chanting, perhaps, but there should be a period of japa that you spend every day where you sit down and rahasistitaha, in a secluded place, staying in a secluded place. It means for concentration. You make an arrangement where you're not going to be distracted. You're going to be distracted even in a secret place. Even in a hidden place, you're going to be distracted by what's already in the mind. What to speak of in a place where there are all kinds of distractions. So some 
external adjustments may be in order. We have to go, of course, into the secret hollow of our own heart. This is the real idea of this. But otherwise, for dhyan, japa's dhyan, mantra dhyan, that we chant three times daily, it should be done in a quiet place, away from everything else, where you can concentrate on that. And we come to the idea here of yogi yunjita satatam atmanam, concentrating on the self, concentrating the mind. As I mentioned, it requires some purification, so we can measure our success in meditation. If we understand something about the mind, there are s- several like state stages or planes of the mind: chipta mudha, bhikshipta, ekagra, nirodha. These all from Yoga Sutras of the sage Patanjali, and they're worth discussing. I've discussed them here in this commentary to some extent, but chipta means that stage of the mind where the mind is focused on external objects, sense objects. And mudha means that that condition of mind where the mind becomes uh, kind of stupefied or just kind of turns off, becomes tired. It just can't focus. So we know about these. These two are governed by tamaguna. A tamaguna influence on the mind is what causes this. So it's very practical. You can understand. Under that influence, you're not going to get samadhi, absorption of the mind. And then bhikshipta means distracted. So in that stage of the mind, which is under the influence of rajaguna, there's some distraction. But sometimes you can slip into samadhi, into absorption, trance, some experience. But you can't maintain it. But when we come to ekagra, ekagra means one-pointedness. That means dominant influence of sattva-guna. Then one can fix the mind. Ekagra means sampragyata-samadhi. Some pragyata samadhi means with some thought still, or reasoning may still be functioning. But you can focus the mind on Krishna. One-pointed. From there, one progresses to in the stage of nirodha, which means the cessation of thought. Asampragyata samadhi. These things are being discussed in this section of this chapter. When he says, yogi yunjita satatam. He's talking about practicing sampragyata samadhi, or ekagra. And again, it's not something you can just decide to practice. Some purification has to be there. We can try, but when we see my mind is influenced by these lower modes of nature, I can't do it. So I have to get up and do something, purify my heart, do Krishna's service. But we should try, and then we should see how successful we are, and then we know what we have to do to be successful. And when you study this kind of chapter, you can appreciate what Prabhupada meant when he said it's a science. It's really science of mind. This is the whole yoga psychology, these first six chapters. So he goes on, Soche deshe pratishtapya stira masana matmanaha He's talking about the seat. It should be in a secluded place. It should have a seat. It should be firm, in a clean place, not too high, not too low. It should be covered with kusha grass, a deer skin in the cloth. In that order, of course, we don't have the deer skins here. Or tiger skins are sometimes used and so forth. So some details we may not be able to put in place, but the spirit of it we can put in place. It should be your own seat, not somebody else's. The sages say, why? Because if it's somebody else's, your mind is going to think, well, maybe he wants to sit on it. <laughs> maybe somebody, the guy who owns this wants to come and take it. It should be your seat. No one else sits on it. It should be clean. 
not too high, not too low, too high. You can fall off when you're in trance. The idea is too low. Some bugs may come. Creatures of the, this is out in the forest. It's talking about a classical yogic situation and disturb you. So these are just practical adjustments that can be useful for fixing the mind and practicing yoga. Making the mind one-pointed. This is again, some pragyata samadhi. He's saying you should culture the sampragyata samadhi, ekagra. Making the mind one-pointed, controlling all the activities of the senses. Yogi should sit on that seat and engage in yoga for the sake of self-purification. Some emphasis here of sitting on the seat means that really meditation should be done in a sitting posture. This is mentioned in the Vedanta Sutra as well. At the same time, these details are there. The, the spirit of this is fix the mind. So if somehow or other you can fix the mind in any condition, then that condition is favorable. But basically, those who are experienced, they have concluded that these things are helpful. So it's not too wise So try to override them. But at the same time, as I say, there's a spirit to this. So if, if somehow or other one can fix the mind in some other situation, there may be some scope for walking and doing japa, I've seen. Even Prabhupada do. Of course, one thing is someone can do japa anywhere, driving the car, standing on his head, or whatever it may be, because Krishna's actually dancing on his tongue. Another thing is to practice, to come to that point. So we should misjudge someone whose every movement is being, he's motivated by Krishna. He's, Krishna is, is chanting him, dancing through him. He's doing it everywhere, in any situation. That should be the standard we should practice our japa in that way, not necessarily. We should sit and do, to get absorbed such that then we can get up like Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur did following the vow of Haridas Thakur for so long, then got such inspiration, got up and made a world campaign of kirtan. So he speaks about physical posture next, so some hatha yoga, astanga yoga both in this chapter, holding the neck and head erect, should remain motionless and steady, concentrating his vision on the tip of the nose, without letting it stray here or there. So his mention of without letting it stray here or there, again he's talking about some pragyata samadhi, he continues to talk about it in the next verse as well. The next verse is important. Prashantatma bigatabhya brahmachari bhutesthita mana samyamya machito yukta asito matpara He says, with the mind quieted, fearless, observing a vow of chastity or celibacy, brahmachari controlling his mind, fixing his thoughts on me. Machito, yukta asita matpara. So here we come, really. You know, he's talked about so many things, sitting and holding the neck erect and having the proper seat, being in a secluded place, and all these details. Don't get caught up too much in the details, but don't neglect them either. What is the heart of it all? Here he says, machito, yukta asita matpara. Fixing thoughts on me, he should sit concentrated in devotion, holding me as the highest object. So this is the heart of yoga. Krishna has been talking about paramatma in a general sense. Here he's identifying himself with that paramatma. That's me, actually. Previously he's identified himself with Brahman, now with paramatma in this chapter. Indirectly here, when Krishna says one should fix one's mind on me, we're being taught that the object of meditation isn't arbitrary. It's God. Sometimes people teach you can meditate on any object, a candle, a rose, or whatever. And you can, 
in a sense. But indirectly what Krishna is saying here, he's disparaging yogis from being distracted by mystic powers. Because mystic powers can be attained by meditating on material elements. If you meditate on a material element, see, meditation involves such absorption of the mind in the object that the mind becomes one with the object and the object is understood. And when you understand fully a particular material element, how it works, or some aspect of material nature, then you can do things that other people find mysterious. It's really not mysterious, it's science. It's the science of yoga. <laughs> but these things, these cities, they are even potentially, of course, teaches in his yoga sutras not to be distracted by these. So there are yogis that meditate on material objects and obtain these. They can also be obtained by, obviously, by meditating upon Krishna, but generally the devotees don't use them, don't express them, certainly don't show them around like some people do to get followers. And Krishna, again, here is by saying me, he's indirectly disparaging one from trying to attain these siddhis. Now in text 15, Krishna says something very significant. He says, Shantim nirvana paramam mat samstam arigachati yunjanevam sadatmanam yogi niyatamanasa. So that yogi who's always disciplining the self, whose mind is controlled, as he said in the previous verse, meditating on me, he attains shantim nirvana paramam mat samstam adigachati. Adigachati, he attains that brahma nirvana. Brahma-nirvana is what was mentioned in the last verse of chapter 2 when Krishna answered briefly Arjuna's question about samadhi. He used this term Brahma-nirvana to describe that attainment of the sthita-pragya. That term has been used in the fifth chapter also, maybe three times. Here he uses it again, but he says something significant about this. This nirvana, nirvana means to blow out, so it means to extinguish desire, and thereby extinguish the material existence. He says, that nirvanam paramam, that supreme nirvanam, which is the supreme peace, mutsamstam, it's subsumed within me. So Krishna here, Bhagavan, is telling us that this, all that is Brahman nirvanam, cessation of material existence and attainment of Brahman, that's all within me. Meditate on me. Fix your mind on me. And all of this and more can be attained. So this is, here he's speaking about asampragyata samadhi. Baladev Bidyabhushana calls this the highest limit of liberation, the highest peace that lies beyond the cessation of material existence is incorporated within the experience of Krishna himself. So the question is, what then must be the direct experience of Krishna for the devotee? This is asampragyata samadhi, in which Thought is restrained, niyata manasaha, as mentioned here, stolen by the charm and beauty of Krishna, it is attained through the constant practice, yunjan, of fixing one's mind on Krishna in sampragyata samadhi. So from sampragyata samadhi, in the stage of ekagra, we come to asampragyata samadhi, nirodha, cessation of all thought. Cessation of all thought in the bhakti context means what? Krishna, chittahari, the mind has been stolen by Krishna, by the charm and beauty of Krishna. can't think for itself, only think for Krishna. So then Krishna speaks about the moderation in yoga, don't eat too much, don't eat too little, don't sleep too much, don't sleep too little. It's, it's not about sleep deprivation or <laughs> extensive fasting. It's balanced. What does Rupa Goswami say? 
Nirbanda Krishna Samande Yukta Vairagyam Uchite. So the yoga that Krishna is describing is very practical. Yukta Vairagyam. Don't over endeavor, don't under endeavor, make effort, but don't endeavor for things that are too difficult to attain. Know your position. Don't eat too much, don't eat too little. We don't just fast for the sake of fasting. Whenever anyone would say they were fasting the property say we would say, What for? What is the purpose of your fasting? For us, we fast on the codicy, there's a reason for it, or on the holy days, not just for the sake of fasting. So Krishna says then what yukta harabihadasya, yukta chaitasya karmasu, yukta sapnalabhodasya yoga bhavati dukkaha. Previously, now he just said what don't, don't do. Don't eat too much, don't eat too little. Don't sleep too much, don't sleep too little. Then don't do those things, do these things. Be disciplined in your eating and your relaxation. Perform your duties diligently. Balanced in sleeping and in waking, and in this way, by the proper practice of yoga, yoga bhavati dukkha, all miseries will be conquered over, will be ended by such yoga practice. Krishna gives a nice example. He says, when a yogi abides in the self alone, the mind controlled and free from longing, in relation to all material desires, at that time he is said to attain yoga. A yogi whose mind is controlled and situated in yoga is compared to a lamp. It is in a windless place and does not flicker. So he helps us with some example to give us an idea how the mind should be controlled. And then in verses 20 to 25, which Vishwana Chakrati Thakur says should be read together, this Asamprangyata Samadhi is described in some greater detail. This stopping from thinking, restraining of all thought, mind fixed on Krishna. And then Krishna says, from wherever the mind wanders, Fickle as it is, draw it back under the control of the self. Again, practice, practice. Practice makes perfect. The yogi whose mind is truly composed, who has subdued his passion and is free from evil, attains ultimate happiness and self-realization. It means he attains Brahman, and he says it then. In this way, through constant practices, the yogi, free from all trace of evil, easily reaches Brahman, attaining boundless happiness and now Krishna goes to the next level. He's talking about a perfected yogi, and his mind naturally comes to his devotees. Again, this chapter is not something to be passed over by the devotees. We're coming to the end now of six chapters where Krishna is building up to reveal to Arjuna all of that is involved in being that person that he wants Arjuna to be, which is his devotee. Sarvabhutastamatmanam sarvabhutani chatmani he was disciplined in yoga, sees the Supreme Self. So from speaking about Brahman, now he goes to Paramatma. Existing in all beings, and all beings in the Supreme Self, he sees equally at all times. Now Prabhupada says he sees me, who sees me in all beings. And me means Krishna, means Bhagavan. And it works well, actually, with the next verse, where Krishna says, Yomam pashati sarvatra sarvam chamai pashati. He who sees me, he says it directly, everywhere, and sees all things in me, I am never lost to him. He is never lost to me. Krishna is describing his Mahabhagavatas here. Great yogis. The gopis are the best example. They saw Krishna in everything. They had such love for Krishna that they began to speak to the trees and to the earth and to the deer. They projected their own devotion in them, saw them as better devotees than themselves. Their vision should be studied in Raspanchajai. When Krishna left the Rasalila, they went searching for him. 
That's what's being talked about here. Seeing Krishna everywhere. Mahaprabhu gave a special darshan to Rai Ramananda at the end of their conversation. He saw Shamsundar and Radha. Then he saw the sannyasi, Mahaprabhu, and back and forth. Mahaprabhu said, oh, you're a perfect devotee. You see Krishna everywhere in everything. That's your position. That's all. I'm nobody. Bhagavatam says, Sabhubhuteshu yapashyad bhagavad bhavamatmanaha bhutani bhagavatiyatmani esha bhagavatottama. This is what this verse is talking about here. Seeing God in everything, in everyone and everything. So in verses 29, 30, 31, Sarvabhutastitam yomam bhajati Krishna speaking about his devotees. The yogi who worships me in the oneness of understanding that it is me who is situated in all beings lives in me regardless of how he acts, regardless of how he acts. This is an important uh, word here. Sarvata Vartamano P. And uh, our minds naturally go to the Braj Gopis and all inhabitants of Vrindavan. We know that uh, yogis, as we've been hearing, try to fix the mind on Krishna. The gopis, they tried to forget Krishna. They were so absorbed in love of him. So, in this way, Krishna is describing his devotional yogis his devotees, especially in Kirtan. Then what? No rules and regulations, Mahaprabhu said. No hard and fast rules for chanting the holy name of Krishna in Kirtan. Particularly in Kirtan, Mahaprabhu, of course, is lamenting there that, oh, I have some defect in me. That is the problem. I have no attraction. But so wonderful and magnanimous is this dispensation of Kirtan. It can be done by anyone at any time in any place. So, so many rules and regulations have been given here. They're relative to dhyan, meditation. And meditation is certainly part of our culture, but who's deeply absorbed in meditation and gets up from that and does kirtan, then he can make so many innovations like Bhakti Saraswati Thakur Prabhupada did for propagating that nam dharma. And for beginners who can't sit and do dhyan, and kirtan is also there, whether you can follow regulations very well or not, do kirtan. So, Regardless of how one acts, that yogi who worships me in the oneness of understanding that it is me who is situated in all beings lives in me. So we should be thoughtful to try to see how a devotee is living in thoughts of Krishna first and foremost and then evaluate his activities accordingly. Sometimes great devotees are hard to understand. So having spoken this in this way about his own devotees, Arjun wonders that if such yogis, devotional yogis, bhaktas, see Krishna in everything, then how do they relate to others? <laughs> what other is there? They see Krishna everywhere and everything. So Krishna responds to this in the next verse. He says, The yogi who measures the pain and pleasure of others as if it were his own, O Arjun, is considered to be the best of all. So this is the compassionate heart of the devotees. They identify with the joys and sorrows of others as if they were their own, and thus they tirelessly canvass to lift others beyond the dualities of joy and sorrow by showering them with the immortal nectar of Harikata, Tavakatamritam, Tattajivanam, Kaviviriditam, Kaumashapam, Shravanamangalam, Srimadatatam, Uvibhinadiyebhridajanaha. The gopis describe these devotees in Gopi Gita singing in madness of separation from Krishna. This is the fifth verse of Gopi Gita. They praised those devotees that are giving Harikata everywhere. 
Mahaprabhu heard this verse in a trance in Jagannath Puri that he had fallen into, coming from the mouth of Pratyaparudra Maharaj, who had been coached previously by Bhattacharya Sarvabhoma, how to get the mercy of the Lord. When he falls in a trance at the Radha Yatra, go to him, not dressed like a king, which means a worldly person, but just as a simple Vaishnav. At that time, when he falls in the trance, you sing this. He gave him Gopi Gita. When we hit this verse, Tavakatamitam Tapta Jivanam, Mahabhu got up and said, Say more! Say more! Who are you? And he embraced him. <laughs> Good coaching on the part of Sarvabhoma. So this is the compassion of the devotees. And also it's significant here that that devotees should deal with others in a particular way, not that they are the non-devotees and we are the devotees. There's some scope for that in terms of close association and so forth. But if in the name of that we just make others out to be enemies and demons and so forth and have no compassion for others, then Krishna has said, Lord Kapiladev, in Bhagavatam, those who worship the deity, but they don't have any care for or love for ordinary people, they're not really worshipping me at all. So we should take heed of that, loving Krishna in the full sense of the term, which is what these verses are speaking about, involves understanding that Krishna means everyone and everything. There is nothing but Krishna. We have to develop our conception of Krishna such that it reaches this pitch. This is the Mahabhagavata vision. So here we've come to this point now. and We've gone through so many chapters. In so many places, Krishna has hinted about devotion, spoken about it covertly, and and here, really, he's, he's coming out with it as the sixth chapter ends. What it really means to be a yogi. It means to be a devotee in the full sense of the term. And he's made a definite statement in these last few verses. So his mind is flooded with thoughts of his devotees. But Arjuna is also overwhelmed. And he's overwhelmed by what it means, as I said earlier, to be a devotee. It's mind-boggling to him. So he says, oh, Madhusudan... The system of yoga you have described that calls for evenness of mind does not appear realistic because of the mind's unsteady nature. He's questioning in his own humility his ability to practice this. In one sense, he's not attracted to a lot of the yogic details and so forth, but he is attracted to the very heart of yoga, which is remembering Krishna, thinking of Krishna always, as we've heard. But this is an enormous undertaking and as I said earlier, Arjun recognizes it. We don't recognize it. We should learn from this verse. Arjun is saying, this is a big thing. This is a formidable task to be what you want me to be, all that it involves. He's right. And he says, with regard to the discussion about controlling the mind that is central to this chapter, he says, the mind is fickle. Chanchalam himana krishna, pramati, balavadridham. It's disturbing. It's powerful. It's obstinate. Oh, Krishna! He says, Chanchalam hi manaha krishna pramati balabadvidam tasyaham nigraham manye vayoriva sudhuskaram. Gives an example. It's like trying to capture the wind, capturing the mind. So while Arjuna is saying that this is Chanchalam hi, it means certainly he. It means this is accepted by everybody. Everybody knows that the mind is hard to control. And if I say it's like the wind, everyone will just nod their head. Yes, that's a good example. It's very difficult to control. It's universally accepted. And it's obstinate, he means he, even if with good intellect, good direction, it doesn't take it. It's obstinate, it's powerful, it's disturbing, it's fickle. And while he's saying all these things, he also says, Oh Krishna. So he actually gives the solution to the problem in the context of discussing the problem. He is actually a devotee. Oh Krishna. Oh Krishna, that is real yoga. Just, Oh Krishna. 
Once Prabhupada was asked about yoga and he replied, Yoga? We just pray, Oh Krishna, please help me. That's yoga. That's all. In all the sacred literature it is mentioned throughout. Nothing is equal to the power of invoking the name of Krishna. So this is really the solution to the problem of the mind. And Arjuna utters it naturally without realizing he's done so. And Krishna answers. And to him he says, Asamshayam Mahabaho Mano Krishna doesn't say, no, no, it's easy to control the mind. He says, yeah, you're right. It's difficult to control the mind. He agrees. No doubt, he says. Oh, mighty armed, implying, but you are mighty armed, so you have the power, the wherewithal to do it. The mind is fickle and difficult to control, but, O son of Kunti, expressing his dearness by way of their relationship, family ties, it can be done. It can be controlled by practice and detachment. So again, practice, abhyasena. We should practice. And detachment means we have to starve the mind from thoughts of sense gratification on the one hand. And practice means fixing the mind on Krishna, the positive side. These two things, he says. He says, I agree that it's difficult, but if the mind, is, if a, whose mind is out of control, but for those whose mind is under control and strives by the proper method, it's possible. So that proper method, that is that sadhana. So he says, have faith in this. This practice makes perfect. Sadhana has great power in it. So Arjun responds further. He says, O Krishna, what destination befalls one who, although possessed of faith, is nevertheless uncontrolled? What happens to one whose mind has fallen away from yoga practice without having achieved perfection? So he's wondering, well, if we give up the ordinary life of karma marg, take to this transcendental path, you won't achieve material results or heaven, and if you fail in yoga, then you won't achieve anything on that side. What will your position be? He says, he refers to Krishna as mighty armed, oh mighty armed Krishna, is he not lost in the pursuit of transcendence like a riven cloud with no solid footing in either world? Of course, as I mentioned the other night, I believe this this has really been answered by Krishna already in the second chapter, in the sense that he said, on this path, when he begins to speak about the yoga path, he talked about Sankhya, when he says, now I'm going to talk about yoga, Text 39 of chapter 2. And then as he began to speak, he said, in this path, this path of yoga, of spiritual culture, then what? There's never any loss. There's no loss. So he elaborates now here on how there's no loss. And Krishna describes two types of yogis. Yogi who leaves the world, whose practice is not very developed, and one who leaves the world, practice very developed but not quite perfect and their destinies are different the one the former whose practice is not fully developed he'll go to heaven and those distractions that he had positive distractions not sinful distractions he'll be able to live them out in heaven without any karmic repercussions exhaust them then he comes back down to earth takes birth in the family of pious people or people who have the economic status that affords him the opportunity to practice spiritual life. And the other one, who doesn't really have any distractions, any such material desires, but he's not perfect, he takes birth in a family of yogis, devotees, transcendentalists. This birth is very rare, Krishna says. But each of these, what happens is, at a certain point, their practice in the past, it kicks in in that next life, and naturally they're attracted to yoga spiritual practice, and they take it up again. 
This way they continue on. So what is the conclusion then? He's carried along by his previous practices and he wants to emphasize. So practice yoga, he says, even if one merely inquires with interest about yoga, he transcends ritualistic recitation of the Vedas. You should be interested in this. He wants to, he says this to emphasize it. Because his conclusion is what? Arjuna, be a yogi. He says, the yogi is superior to the ascetic, superior to the jnani, superior to the ritualist as well. Therefore, Arjuna, be a yogi. And last, concluding this verse in his whole six chapters of the psychology of Bhagavad Gita, the yoga psychology, says, of all yogis, yoginam apisavesham madgatinantaratmanam shodhavan bhajate yogam sami yuktatamomata. One who is devoted to me, my devotee, that is the best kind of yogi. This is what we should become, he tells Arjuna. You should become this. So we should understand everything that's involved in the basic idea of being a devotee. Then we go on from here now. In the middle six chapters, Krishna describes himself and different gradations of devotees, different types of devotees, mixed devotees, karma measure, jnana measure, yoga measure, and shuddha bhaktas, pure devotees. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai, Sisi Krishna Arjun ki jai, Shilai Si Bhakti Vedanta Sami Prabhupada ki jai, Bhakti Rakshishri Goswami Maharaj ki jai, Bhakti Siddhanta Sasri Thakur Prabhupada ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai, Uttarimanandi.